please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. This morning we'll be looking at this parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Swindlers and just adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, as we continue to worship you, we ask now for a blessing upon your word, and we trust your promise that your word will not return void. May our worship exalt you, and may you, by your spirit, do your work within us through the preaching of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. If, at least when I was growing up, if my mother said to me one time, Tom, or she wouldn't say Tom, she'd say, Tommy, pick up the shirt off the floor. If she told me one time, what would I do? Usually ignore her. Probably like some of you children. Your mom says something, pick up the clothes, pick up the book. Yeah, mom. You, you don't do it. But when I was growing up, if my mom said that a second time, and I didn't do it, she would go outside to the tree, break off a branch, take off the leaves to make a switch. Have you ever heard of a switch? I would get it on my legs. If she told me one time, you know, okay, I, I should have done it the first time. If I didn't do it the second time, it would be the switch. Why do I say that? I can remember at Master's College one time, Ken Ramey came up. Uh, he's been here before. He's a preacher in Texas, graduated from Master's College and Seminary. But at Master's College, there was a chapel, and he was preaching, and he preached Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and the theme was, don't lose your first love. It was a good sermon. He's a good preacher. Two days later, David Jeremiah preached. Do you guys know who David Jeremiah is? He preached. Without Ken Ramey and David Jeremiah coordinating, it was the same passage, and it was almost the same sermon with the same message. Don't lose your first love. Talk about convicting. It felt like my mom had told me to pick something up off the ground, and I didn't do it. And then I got whipped the second time. It was very convicting. I say that to say, without coordinating, this morning, John, when he was 
teaching and preaching God's word, also taught from Luke. And part of the passage that he was teaching on talked about Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Without John and I talking or coordinating at all, we end up covering the same words from the same person, but from a different text. About humility. So in the providence of God, it seems God may want us to learn a little bit better humility. And in the providence of God, it happens that my theme that I chose, I think that comes out of this text, is this. Getting low comes before the glory. Getting low comes before the glory. And this passage, this parable, teaches this through two characters. Of course, the Pharisee, then the other is the publican, the tax collector. The biblical principle is that humility comes before honor. Now, the reason why I would preach this text this week is because today is Palm Sunday, and we're looking toward Good Friday, that day, that evening when Christ was betrayed, arrested, tortured, and then crucified. We're looking toward Good Friday, and based upon looking toward the crucifixion, I chose this passage. Why would I choose this passage? Because if you look at Luke 18, verse 13, where it says, Be merciful to me, we'll look at that later, but be merciful to me is basically, Lord, make propitiation for me. Make atonement for me. The the task collector is saying, basically, I need a sacrifice. I need a substitution. I'm guilty. And I need somebody to pay the price. That's what really the task collector is saying. By saying, be merciful to me, yes. But even specifically how? Pay the debt. I need a debt payer. Pay off my debt. I can't pay it. So based upon that, I want us to look at that passage. And you'll notice, this passage, you'll notice that verse 9, he says, Luke is, the Spirit of God through Luke, he's giving this parable because there are people who were trusting that they were, it's the word when it says in verse 9, trusted, it's a word that's even used for persuasion. There are some people that are persuaded, I am such a godly person. I am so righteous. Too bad you're not. You're not like me. I'm a pastor. You're not. But then when the passage ends, it ends with verse 14 talking about those that that humble themselves, they will be elevated. Those that humble themselves will be lifted up. What does that mean? Jesus says that there's a principle that humility comes before honor. Getting low comes before the glory. 
And part of this, not, not all of it, but part of it does revolve around this idea of this big word, propitiation. Make substitution for me. Pay the debt. I'm reminded, I was going to use this passage, and then John used it in his teaching, and it's appropriate, Philippians 2, verse 5, Christ humbles himself, even to the point of death, death on the cross. But then what happens? In verse, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he's exalted, and every knee bows before him. But first, he became low, and he humbled himself. And even if we go on, just briefly, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I think based upon Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he glories in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3, 3. But then verse 21 of the same chapter says, who would transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Again, you have this principle of we get low in the sense of having, you can look at Philippians 3.3, 3, we have no confidence in our own flesh or our own ability. Rather, we glory in Jesus. And then one day, by his grace, we get transformed into conformity with the body of his glory. In some way, our, our glory will be like Christ's glorious resurrected body. <laughs> so when I say, get low, that, that getting low comes before getting the glory, looking throughout the New Testament and even, you know, looking at 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, the, the whole Bible is that this exaltation is something which is unbelievably blessed and good and, 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 and crazy. But to get there, we get low. And even low underneath this crucifixion, this cross work of Jesus Christ. So to understand this and to seek to apply our understanding, then let's first look at the Pharisee and then we'll look at the tax collector. So first, the, the Pharisee. And we can say that basically he has this message Refuse the glory in yourself. Refuse the glory in your own good works. This is in verses 10 through 12. The Pharisee, when you look at this text, certainly he was impressed with himself. He was impressed with his own godliness, with his own works, with his own righteousness. Are you impressed with your own righteousness, with your own good deeds, with your own godliness, with your own spirituality? This man is oozing with self-confidence and his religiousosity. Kind of the opposite of Philippians 3.3 says, have no confidence in the flesh. He is having confidence in the flesh. Now, remember what kind of man the Pharisee was. A Pharisee was who? How did the nation Israel look at a Pharisee? By and large, they would have looked at a Pharisee as, this is an expert in the Bible. He's an expert in godly living. 
perhaps it'd be somewhat equivalent in some way to this man is a seminary professor or he is a, a, a pastor that's a Bible expert. He's a pastor and a theologian. And if only my daughter could marry him because he's the epitome of godliness. He's really a godly man and he's super, super disciplined and holiness. He's got almost the whole Bible memorized. He's got to be godly. He believes in all the right things. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. But this particular Pharisees and others, many of them, if not most of them, were trusting in their external outward commitment to not just God's standard, but even their own standard. And they thought that that saved them. And then they would compare themselves to others. And so they got in this vicious circle of, if I look at other people in my church, in my synagogue, in my community, in my city, I can outperform them. Can you outperform others and godliness and church attendance and reading the Bible? Well, the Pharisees could outperform, out good work others to the tenth degree. And so they would look at others, and then they would say, I'm so righteous. I'm such a good person compared to the scum of the earth. I look at my neighbors. I look at some people that just come to church sometimes. I'm so much better than them. God, have mercy on them. I'm such a good person. Thank you, God, that I'm so good. This is the the attitude that they, they had. And so we need to do the opposite and to refuse to glory in ourself. Because that's what this Pharisee is doing. So this includes resisting broadcasting of spirituality. You can see this in verse 11. The Pharisee stood when he was praying thus to himself. I don't think it's that he was actually making a prayer to him because he says in verse 11, God, I thank you. I think there are some undertones to what Jesus is saying here. It's not that the Pharisee, in his own mind, was intentionally praying to himself, but that's actually what ended up happening. Because he's broadcasting and informing to God how great he is. The prayer is talking to the object of the prayer, God, and telling the one that is omniscient, These are all the things I've done for you, and look how great I am. And I think that's why the Lord states it this way. The Pharisee stood, there's nothing wrong with praying, standing. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, probably out loud. We can see that in other places where Jesus talks about the Pharisees praying out loud on a street corner. But when you look at all that he says, he's not saying, God, I, I thank you that, that you're great and good. I thank you that you meet all my needs. I, I thank you that you're with me every day. That even though I'm sinful, that you still forgive me, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But rather, he's just talking about himself and how marvelous he is. He doesn't even mention that he needs God. He doesn't mention that he needs grace. He does mention the word God, but really, this is an an audaciously evil 
prayer. You can say the word theos, you know, that's Greek for God. You can say dev, which in Marathi is God. I think in Russian, is it Prabhu or Bog? Bog, I think it is. You can even at the end of your prayer say, in the name of Jesus. That doesn't sanctify your prayer and make it acceptable if your prayer is about how great you are. And that's the Pharisee's problem, is he's broadcasting really how wonderful he is. So we want to resist that. Our prayer is not about how great we are, but how great the Lord is. Refusing to glory in our own good works. We don't broadcast ourselves. Second, we resist comparing ourselves to others, especially the wicked. We resist comparing ourselves to others, especially the wicked. When you look at this, it's instructive because he says, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he's going to define and elaborate what he means. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this task collector. Why doesn't he say, Lord, I, I confess, I'm not like Moses. I'm not like Elijah, Lord. Lord, I'm not like Joshua or Caleb or Nehemiah. I'm not, Lord. God, help me. Out of all of everybody, you know, in all society and all the Bible, who does he pick? At least according to society, the ones that would be last in terms of holiness and godliness. And sometimes we can do that, to take comfort in how great we are. We can look at the worst people. I'm better than them. Fantastic. That's great. You should be better than them. He chooses what would be considered, at least by people, to be the worst. You know, it's it's funny, but it's also sad. It's He's made a Thanksgiving list. You know, sometimes we say, can you make a Thanksgiving list, number it, and you can use that during your prayer time. It's like during our prayer time of, of praise, when we say, okay, uh, David or whoever has done the music, now we're going to have a pray, uh, praise time. What one of you would take out a list? You know, I thank you that I'm not like this NFL hockey basketball player that makes millions and millions of dollars and then lives an immoral life. I thank you that I'm not like them. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Hollywood entertainer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like a corrupt politician. Would you even think about doing that? I don't think you would do that publicly, but sometimes in the church, in our families, in our neighborhoods, we can be, man, I'm so thankful that I'm not like these other people. And we can kind of have this smug kind of, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit bad, but that one person, they're really bad. <laughs> That's how I used to say about myself, look, I would get high six days a week, but I didn't get high seven days a week. I'm not as bad as somebody. I did marijuana, I did speed, but I didn't do heroin, I didn't do cocaine, I didn't even like beer that much. Okay? I wasn't that bad, just a little bit bad. This is basically this Pharisee is doing. 
And when you look at the list he gives, basically, he's saying that I haven't broken the second part of the Ten Commandments, right? I'm not a covenant breaker. I don't covet. I don't lie, swindler, unjust, adulterer. Even this tax collector, you know, he's saying, I'm not a traitor to my country. I'm a constitutionalist. I'm not a traitor. Like him, the tax collector, he's a traitor. God, thank you that I'm not a traitor. I thank you that I've kept the second half of the Ten Commandments, Lord. By your grace, I'm not like other people. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even give thanks to God for his grace. Perhaps you can think of it this way. The Pharisee is comparing himself to other people, but yet not to who? Not to God. And that's his problem. That's your problem. My problem. Is that I can always be better than some people. And many people can be better than me. But none of us can be better than God or even match God. The Bible says in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Nahum 1, 7 says, By no means would God let the guilty go unpunished. And we're commanded to be holy. First Peter 1, 14, 15. Be holy like God is holy. Are you holy? Am I holy? No. I'm not. Therefore, God must punish sinners in hell forever. The standard is infinite holiness. Suppose we decided to have a contest of who can jump to Pluto. Who can jump to Pluto? So first we get the young men, under 20 years old, line up by the pulpit. Line up by the pulpit. Maybe Thomas goes first. Thomas, you go. Jump to Pluto. Jump high, son. So he jumps. And you know what? He's more athletic, stronger than I am. He jumps. I mean, he, he jumps. He jumps pretty high. Then we get other young men. Everybody's jumping high. high. Zach, he comes. He jumps. He's able to grab on up to, to that bar. Elias comes. He jumps. He goes past that bar and grabs onto those lights up there above the stage. Man, that's a good jump. But then it's my turn. I've been practicing really hard. I even get a trampoline and get a running start from the stage, jump on the trampoline, and I go up and I, I go pat, I hit my head on the roof. Ouch. It hurt. And I'm, I'm so smug. You know, I beat all of you. I, I did have a little bit of help, but I, I, I beat all of you. Did I get to Pluto? How far away is Pluto? 3.1 billion miles. Look it up on your cell phone. 3.1 billion miles. Did I make it? Did I come close? No. What about if I told God, God, look, let me into heaven. Say that you have to get to Pluto to get to heaven. God, let me into heaven because I, I almost made... Well, I... I I didn't almost make it to Pluto, but I made it further than anybody else. I imagine the Lord could say, Tom, you know what? A baboon can jump higher than you. 
So if a baboon tried to get to Pluto by jumping, a baboon can get closer than you. If you're going to judge it upon how high you can jump. And that's kind of what we do with our good works. You know, there are Mormons, Roman Catholics, Hindus, Muslims that read their holy books more, that memorize their Bibles more, that give more money, that evangelize better, that in, in, in some senses, in terms of external works, can seem to be externally more sacrificial. It's true. When's the last time you've gotten the ground and rolled from Los Angeles all the way to New York? Just rolled to be holy. Sacrificing your body. That's what some people do in India. I'm not saying that's right, but what I am saying is we can always find somebody that we are better than, but there also are other people that in terms of good works, Christian or not Christian, at least externally in some way can be better. I know non-believers that know the Bible better than me. There are non-believers, there are Roman Catholics and there are Jews that have much of the Bible scholars memorized. That doesn't mean they're going to heaven. This Pharisee is trusting in his attainments and how he is not like wicked people. He goes on and he talks, then he begins to brag about these attainments. You can see in verse 12, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes. Well, the Old Testament didn't say that you had to fight, fast twice a week. I believe the, the Day of Atonement they fasted, and then there would be special fasts maybe throughout the years and months. But the Pharisees would fast, was it Tuesday and Thursday? Or Monday and Thursday? Twice a week. He would give all that he got as a tithe. Everything he received, part of that he would give as a tithe. The Jews, basically, if you add it all up, were to give about 20 point something percent. But here the Pharisee is saying that everything that I get, if somebody gave me 10 marbles, I'm going to give at least one of them an offering. So anything that you get should go to the church and then to me. That basically the Pharisee is saying, anything that I get, part of that, I'm going to get to God. So for Christmas, if you get kids, if you get ten presents, you should give one of those presents to the Lord, to the church, to be really godly. So if you get an attendo, give it to the church, to be really godly. This is what, I'm not saying that. This is what this tax collector is saying, how committed he was. He was really committed to giving beyond what the Bible said. He was committed to fasting beyond what the Bible said. Maybe in today's language, it could be, you know what? I read the Bible through no matter what in a year. Is that bad? No, that's good. 
unless you do that in order to feel uh, I'm more righteous. I'm closer to God because I went through the Bible through in, in a year. You know, you didn't really pay attention to what you were reading, but you did it. You didn't pay attention. You just read it. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> did my duty. Now I'm godly. No. that God's not impressed with that. Maybe it's like, I, I won't watch sports for the whole year. Oh, that could be really good. That, that doesn't necessarily bring you closer to God. Maybe it's every single day, no matter what, we're going to have a family Bible time. That that could be really good. The, the Bible doesn't say that you have to have a family Bible time every single day. Nobody here, I have a friend, nobody here that you know at all. Nobody knows this person. Okay, He's never been here. I have to clarify that. I have a friend that would come home from work and he would wake up his kids out of bed at 11 p.m. in order to have a family Bible time with them. And his kids would be... But he did it. Why? Because he was going beyond. He wanted to be extra, extra holy. I've had friends that told me, nobody here have told me, Tom, would you commit with me to witness to five people this week? I've had friends tell me, Tom, will you commit to win five people to Christ this week? And don't stop it until you do it. Win five people to Christ this week. Not, not just pray about it. You actually keep evangelizing until you do it. I've heard that many times before. I, I've been told that. That's something you seek to do. Does the Bible say, this is how many people you need to evangelize this week? This is how many people you need to win to Christ this week? This is how much of the Bible you need to read this week? You need to give this amount of money every single Sunday? No. The Bible says give according to what you've decided in your heart as what kind of a giver? Cheerful giver. But there can be a temptation, even in Christians because of remaining sin, that I'm, I'm extra righteous because I do a lot of extra Bible work. I, I, I go beyond what the Bible says. I'm really godly. I'm more righteous than you. I'm more zealous than you. I should ask you about your prayer lives. I wonder how long you pray. Do you pray every day? Do you pray 30 minutes every day? It's kind of scary. Once you start asking people, how long do you pray? Isn't it funny that the Bible doesn't say, thus you must pray 10 minutes a day. You can look in vain all over for the Bible. Nowhere does Jesus say, hey disciples, he says, couldn't you pray with me for an hour? But there is no place where it says, thus you must pray an hour or 10 minutes or 30 minutes or 15 minutes. What I am saying that Jesus is pointing out that we can add a lot of preferences, turn them into precepts, and then we're able to do what we've commanded ourselves and then we feel smug about ourselves. When really, we haven't dealt with the sin that's in our own hearts. And that's pride. It's pride. Nowhere here does the Pharisees say, Lord, I blew it this week. I, I blew it today. I was unkind. I lied. Would you forgive me, Lord? 
please. He never says that because he's full of pride. Mainly his prayer is braggadocia. It is Milton Vincent in his book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, that writes this, quote, God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way so as to strip me of my pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. What room do you have to boast about anything? Anything that we do good was by the power of the Spirit of God. What room do we have to boast? Paul said he would boast in what? In the glory of the cross. By God's grace, let us resolve not to exalt ourselves, not to boast in ourselves. Gospel humility is the blood that flows through a healthy Christianity. Gospel humility, coming from looking at the cross, is really what flows throughout the blood vessels of our spirituality, making us healthy. It's once we begin to get smug and self-confident and boasting about what we think we are doing that makes the, as it were, Christian blood unhealthy. And then we get spiritually blood clots and can't function. Because we're full of who? Self, not Christ. By God's grace, may we learn from the Pharisee. May we be students of this Pharisee and learn to refuse to glory in ourselves. But now, secondly, the tax collector, we resolve to glory in Christ alone. We resolve to glory in Christ, to be impressed with, with him, to to seek to brag and boast about him, to give him the glory. Now this includes first humiliation, and you can see it here in verse 13, but the tax collector who, again, he would have been considered a, a traitor to the people of God. He would be considered a swindler. He was working for the invading army. He was gathering taxes, and usually they would take more than what was necessary so they themselves could have nice things. So they'd, they'd be considered traitors to God, traitors to the country, and evil people. Scum. Devious. Evil people. We wouldn't want him here at the church. Who would want that guy? Get out of here. You're a traitor. Criminal. But look at verse 13. First, there is this humiliation. Standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, sometimes when they prayed, some would stand up, raise their hands, and open their eyes. And even I think Christ sometimes would, would pray this way. Father in heaven. I, I like at times praying that way. Yes, Lord. But the tax collector, sensing his own guilt, is... It's, yes, he's humble, but he, in a sense, he's, he's humiliated. Not by the Pharisees saying, even this tax collector, he's at the temple also to pray. But he's not worthy. He's not worthy of God. He's not worthy of the Lord. He's not worthy to be in the temple. He's not worthy of God's people. He can't even raise his head. God, I've got nothing. 
reminds me of Isaiah, and Isaiah 63, we think of Isaiah as this tremendously godly man, who of course was, who saw the, the glory and the holiness of God, and said, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Here is a traitor, a, a criminal. But also there is this humiliation that he has. He's not impressed with himself. With himself, I, I think he has this understanding that he deserves the, the wrath of God. But certainly the Pharisee knew, Ecclesiastes 7.20, there was no one who does good that is completely righteous. The, the, the Pharisee understood that. But it seems the tax collector is aware more of his sinfulness. Of his guilt. Of the deserving wrath of God. There's also, when you look at this text, this contrition. Not only is he in this state of humiliation realizing that basically he is in a low estate. Yes, he's been created in the image of God, but he's guilty of sin. He's poor. He's destitute spiritually. Perhaps he was realizing that without God in his life, without the Lord in his life, we would say without Christ in his life, he is dead. But there's also this contrition. Look at, look at verse 13. So he's not willing to even lift his head up and all he's doing is beating his, his chest. And that's what they would do during Old Testament times, just in such anguish. Ah. God, God, God. Have you ever been that way? Just so broken and torn up inside. Not about that other people didn't love you or treat you right, but that you were guilty of sin before God. That's why this tax collector is doing that. He's not looking at all the other people saying, I'm better than this guy. I'm better than this guy. I'm better than my wife. I'm better than my husband. I'm better than my kids. I'm better than my neighbors. He's looking at God. God, I'm not like you. I'm not like anybody. I'm guilty, Lord. I'm guilty. And he's broken about it. There's this anguish that is coming out from Beating his breast, this intensity of uh, of sorrow. No, the Pharisee is intense, but he's intense about his own righteousness. I'm sorry, his own righteousness, about his own good deeds. The tax collector is intense about how he's in a despicable, dangerous position. Psalm 51.4, David says something similar. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And he says, God, I'm, David does in Psalm 51, I'm worthy to be judged by you. And this is basically what the tax collector is saying with his actions. It reminds me of the Beatitudes, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are meek, that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness that are just God I'm a broken vessel I don't have what it takes and I deserve judgment 
Is there anybody in this room that in one sense is not broken by their sin? None of us. Not one person. Not one of you can say, I'm sinless and I don't need Christ. Not one of you. Certainly not me. I need Jesus twice as much as you do. I do. Because I read the Bible all the time and study it all the time. And my wife and my kids would tell you, Daddy doesn't always do, my husband doesn't always do what the Bible says. Do I do all that I preach? I don't. I need a Savior twice as much as you need a Savior. Definitely. The tax collector is in anguish. What are you going to do? He's broken over his spiritual brokenness. And so he's in desperation. Perhaps Paul was thinking about this when he said, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Lord, who has set me free from this wretched body? Romans 7. But thanks be to God, the victory is in Jesus Christ. And this passage, in some ways, is pointing to that section. I think we can say we can't have an authentic relationship with God unless we see that not only our flesh, our physical bodies is a clay pot and is breaking apart, but even spiritually. There, there's not one of us that can say, Lord, everything you've told me to do, I've done. Who can say that? Not one of you, not me, not one of us. We all need Jesus just as much as the next person. Husbands and wives, both of you need all of Jesus. Children, all your siblings, all of you need the same Jesus. All of you, we all do. We all need Christ. True happiness comes when we see that spiritually we're broken, so broken that we need a Savior to save us. Broken because of sin. And so the, the tax collector goes on. We've seen this passage, this section. We see this humiliation. We see his contrition. But also this plea for satisfaction. This plea for satisfaction. Look at verse 13. And he makes it very clear. It's not just like... I'm emotionally broken and scarred. No, he's saying, I'm a sinner. I'm broken because of my sin. I am not just a sinner, I'm the sinner. That's what it says at the end of verse 13. My translation would be, oh God, make atonement for me, the sinner. I would say that that's probably the the best translation. Oh God, Make propitiation for me, the sinner. I think mercy falls a little bit short. Mercy does give rise to propitiation and is also an effective propitiation. But if you were to probably look in the margin of your Bibles, you would see that another translation, instead of mercy, could be propitious. Children, what does propitiation or propitiation mean? If you were at the Bible study for the youth on Friday night, you would have heard the word atonement. At one moment, the debt of sin was 
paid in full by the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Holy Lamb, innocent Holy Lamb of God. And this word here, this tax collector, is actually being more biblical than the Bible expert. And he's using the word halaskamai. Normally we have the noun, right? First uh, John 2.2, 2, we're familiar with this passage. First John 2.2, 2, this great verse. And he himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And even it's used in Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25, it's used a few other times. But Romans 3.25, it's also used. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. The word propitiation and those passages I just read, First John and Romans 3.25, are nouns. The problem here is that it's not a noun, but it's a verb. And so it's kind of hard, and maybe people wouldn't understand it that well if it said, oh God, make propitiation for me. You know, it would seem too awkward. But that is what the actual Greek translation is saying. Mercy leads to propitiation, and propitiation brings mercy. But it's more of this idea of God, he's holy, and he doesn't just take my sin and say, hey, Tom, it's okay. Nobody. You know, all those evil, wretched thoughts and behaviors you did that nobody knew about? Nobody knows it. Not even the angels. The angels, not even Satan or omniscient. Just between you and me, Tom. I hid them. Nobody knows. Shh, I won't tell anybody. Can God do that? If God did that, he wouldn't be God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. By no means will he let Tom's sin go unpunished. Nahum 1.7. He can't do that. If God just said, Tom, it's okay. I love you. Forget about your sin. No, that sin has to be paid in full. And so that's the, the, the gospel. Is that So God became a man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man. Lived a perfect life in this world never sinning, not even once, and that died on the cross, paying my sin debt. The soul that sins must die, physically and spiritually. The wages of sin is what? Death. Eternal death. Experiencing that full wrath of God, that full fury of God. If God does not pull out his fury upon my sin then he wouldn't be God. So Christ, the living word, went to the cross to pay the debt of every single person that would trust him. So God's wrath is appeased. God's wrath is satisfied. Because for God to be God, he must punish sin. Every sin that's ever been committed will be paid. Justice will meet every single sin that every single person ever committed. That sin will be dealt with in full. It will. Either on the cross or in hell. One of the two places. Nobody would get away with any sin 
ever. And if you want to pay the price yourself, you can. You can pay the price of your sin, but it will take forever in hell to pay it. Not a wise choice. Choose Jesus. And here the tax collector is saying, I am so sinful, I am so wicked. I need you to pay the price. I need God, because the subject, God, God, you make appeasement, you make satisfaction, you yourself have to pay my debt. It can't be even the Pharisee. It can't be Charles Spurgeon. It can't be Martin Lloyd Jones. It can't be John MacArthur. It can't be any angel. It can't be any famous person. It can't be any parent. It can't be any pastor. It can only be the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man may come unto the Father except through Him, because He's God and He's the one that can only pay the full price of our sin. I imagine they put mercy there because it's referring to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. But I think it'd be better to say more of God. Satisfy yourself. You pay the price of my sin. And so we glory in Jesus. We, we glory in the Lord. And this is even why we relate to one another. We can forgive one another. We can even forgive terrible sin that's been committed. Because why? It's been paid in full and full. That's the only way that I can get out of bed. I know my sin. Do you know your sin? There's been times when I've just been in anguish because of my sin. Living with the guilt of your sin? Have you ever done that? Just live with the guilt, the raw guilt of your sin? Having a defiled, dirty conscience like the brothers of Joseph for over 20 years? Have you ever had that? Gnaws at you. Gnaws. The freedom, the joy that we can have so we can get up out of bed is that that wrath that I deserve, that guilt... Christ has paid for that on the cross. The blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. Thank you, Lord. This is what the Pharisee should have prayed, right? He should have said, Lord, I thank you that you're the one that propitiates sin. And we wait for the coming Lamb of God, according to Isaiah 53. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But rather... It's the one that society considered to be a traitor that prays this way. So Christ says, then who went home justified? It's the tax collector. And this is another point, justification. Humiliation, contrition, satisfaction. Now justification. And we can see this briefly in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified. That means declared right with God. It was this tax collector that was put in a status of right with God. The one that ended up having the right relationship with God was the tax collector. Theologically, we know from the New Testament, justified is the idea that God says, 
I place the perfect obedience of Christ on your life so that your status right with me is not based upon your performance, but Christ's performance. So as we've said before with Ephesians 6, the breastplate of righteousness, when you look at the tax collector, it says this man went to his house justified rather than the other. That would mean this. Let's say the tax collector and the Pharisee, they go to their church, their synagogue, the temple. They pray. They're both going home. And they're both hit by a chariot. They both die. Who would go to heaven? The Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee would go to hell. And the tax collector would go to heaven. But what would happen when he would go to heaven? Would it be like, whoa, man. You have Gabriel like there at the gate. You just barely made it, tax collector. Just barely. <laughs> it's like you got in just by the hair on your chin. I mean, you have a long beard. You just barely made it in. Would that be what would happen? Because sometimes I, I think about myself. I'm going to be like in the back of heaven. You know? I'm, I'm going to be like way, way, way far away. You know? But that's a works righteousness mentality. What this passage is saying and the rest of the New Testament says is when you say, Lord, I can't get to heaven, it, if I had 10,000 lifetimes, I could not have enough righteousness to get to heaven, Lord. Because I, by, by nature and by my works, I'm a sinner. And I need your righteousness. By faith, you trust Jesus. He gives you his righteousness. So that when you enter into heaven, it's not you just barely get in. You get in with flying colors. Why? Because it's... You don't get in because of you. You get in because of him. You get in because of his credit and his account. Like if heaven, to get into heaven, if you had to go like, here's a billion dollars, could you get into heaven? No. But the cost to get into heaven isn't a billion dollars. It's an infinite amount of credit. And who gives you that credit? Christ. His account is applied to your life only by faith. Romans 4, 5. To the one who believes that God justifies without works, Christ's righteousness through faith is accredited to him, to that person, based upon satisfaction that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, word and flesh, paid the debt of sin in full for all those who trust him alone. And then this passage ends with glorification, humiliation, contrition, satisfaction, justification, glorification. And and just briefly, you can see this then in verse 14, this principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Placed into a, a high status will be placed into a high position. So the Pharisee was you know, la creme de creme of society. Hey, I'm a spiritual teacher. I'm a godly man. I'm a Pharisee. Look at all the people hanging on my every word. Have you noticed my blog yet and read my books? I've got them all. Would you like it signed? I almost brought my signed Bible. I have a signed Bible. 
You want to sign? I'll sign your Bible for you. you know, like creme de creme, look at me. I'm great. I'm so godly. I haven't done what you did and you did and you did and you did and you did. I'm so righteous. Then you have the tax collector. I got nothing, God. I, I, I got nothing. Except my sin. Would you pay the price of it? Please, Lord. Please. Only you can do it, Jesus. Which, home, which man went home saved? Forgiven. It was the tax collector. But daily we're to live this way. Not daily being saved, but daily realizing it's but by the grace of God I live and I come to the cross empty-handed. Lord, I was saved by grace. I live by grace. My sin has been paid and forgiven in full and I thank you and, and I praise you, Jesus. The hymn writer, I think, said it well when he wrote this. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Lord, we thank you for this parable. Lord, help us not to be like the Pharisee. But Lord, help us to even have this attitude like the publican. Lord, we don't want to be traitors to our country. But Lord, we do confess that we need a Savior. Lord, we confess that we are all dirty because of sin, as it says in Isaiah, from the top of our heads to the toes on our feet, we have sinned, Lord. We are redeemed and we are regenerated, but yet, Lord, we are still fallen. And remaining sin is still powerful within us. And so, cleanse us and save us, Lord. And may we live by the power, Lord, of your gospel and, and great joy, knowing that our works can't attain our righteousness. Our works can't attain our forgiveness. Rather, it was the perfect work of Jesus that we glory in, which attains our righteousness and our forgiveness. May this be true for all of us and those that are here this morning and yet have not placed their full hope, their glory, their trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Awaken them this morning, Lord, and save them even now, Lord. We give you the glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.